You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. Thank you, Jacob, and uh, thanks for reminding me that I used that bingo joke last time because uh, I'm tending these days to forget the jokes that I've used. I, I kind of figure it out when people laugh a little less all the time, but uh, it is so great to be able to be with you all tonight, and I'm looking around to see, is Cameron in here anywhere? Cameron hasn't made it in here yet. Those of you who were here last week and were able to hear him, uh, my goodness, I mean, that was a quick turnaround for him to be able, uh, after the election, to come in and uh, the next night uh, to be able to, to talk about things. Well, for, uh, for this presentation tonight, it's uh, first a little bit of raw politics, and then uh, we're going to do Q&A for a little while, and then I'm told Danny I'm going to try to be spiritual uh, before we, we get out of here tonight. I've got just a few points uh, that I want to try to make about Christian citizenship, what, what the role is for us or how we can, can respond, understanding that uh, this is our home but not our eternal home. So there you go. So let's start off. What did we learn on November 8? Number one, big, exciting truism right here. Donald Trump won. Uh, I know you may not have may may have overlooked that, but uh, but Donald Trump won. Actually, I mean a little bit more to this point than just that Donald Trump won. I mean, really, Donald Trump won. If you're looking for a whole series of winners in this election, you might not be accurate in saying that there were a whole lot of winners. Donald Trump was the big winner. And as it turns out, many people who thought that Donald Trump was perhaps the worst presidential candidate in recent memory turned out to be exactly the kind of presidential candidate that a lot of voters were looking for. And I'm going to talk about that just a little bit more later. But the Trump phenomenon is uh, one of the most unusual things that we have seen in our lifetimes in electoral behavior. And few people predicted it, obviously. The media didn't predict it very well at all, which is the next point. Because in this election, if you want to look for a big loser, it would be the media. The media lost. This has some pretty major implications for the immediate future and perhaps for the more distant future. But the interesting thing to me tonight is that even though the media lost, the media still doesn't understand that the media lost. You know, you in the immediate aftermath, you, you read and you, you heard quite a bit from uh, folks in the media talking about how they missed it, and there were uh, appropriate expressions of humility for about 24 hours. And then, all of a sudden, here it comes again. And you're seeing the kind of reporting now that is all expressing the uh, many of the, the same views, that everything is wrong in the Trump transition, and that he doesn't know what he's doing, and this, that, and the other. He apparently went out to dinner last night without telling the media. And uh, so they're not very excited about that. And what they are missing is the lesson they should have learned that they are only making Trump's case right now. And uh, so the irrelevance of the media is actually stunning right now. And where this leads over the next several years, I have no idea. But it's a big lesson for presidential candidates, especially as they begin to look to the future. Next point. An ideological thread may be missing here. If you are searching for trying to find one ideological thread that connects every segment of the Trump vote, well, you're a better political scientist than I am if you find it. 
I, I, I think that you could point to one characteristic and say, well, there tended to be a lot of anger in the Trump vote. And I think that that might be right. But you can't truly find an ideological thread. And in fact, if we're honest tonight, we have to say we don't yet know what Donald Trump's ideology is that I think may become more apparent over time. But right now, we're not really sure. I think we may be able to discern some of that uh, from the appointments that he's going to be making. But there's uncertainty about exactly that right now. I heard uh, one, of the, one of the commentators uh, on that, that long night last week uh, make this statement. He was very pointed in saying, he said, tonight is the death of ideology. Well, I don't think that I would go quite that far. But we may find in Trump, we may find a complete pragmatism in the way that he decides to approach issues. So right now, at least, we can't find the ideological thread that connects the, the uh, coalition that President-elect Trump was able to put together. Next point, the impact on the federal judiciary may be stunning. And if we could go to the slide with the birthdays on it. There you go. If you want to see something really interesting, these are the dates of birth for the eight remaining justices of the Supreme Court. And you notice that I put in red uh, the, the first three. Justice Ginsburg, who I think is now 83. Justice Kennedy, who uh, has just turned 80. Justice Breyer, uh, will be 80 in a couple of years. And then in blue, two additional names, Justice Thomas, born in 1948, and Justice Alito, born in 1950. Now, in red, I have assumed that these might be replacement justices during a first Trump term. If he is reelected, it's entirely possible that the other two names in blue might be replaced in a second term. Now, you take into account that there's already a vacancy that exists. Justice Scalia died earlier this year. The Republicans have held hostage that appointment. And so it is possible in two terms that a President Trump would be able to appoint six justices to the United States Supreme Court. In the history of appointments to the court, George Washington, you would guess that he might have had the most because he got to appoint them all and then some reappointments. Eleven. Washington appointed eleven. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, serving three terms in a year, appointed nine. Andrew Jackson, across two terms, appointed six. So if Trump in two terms is able to make six appointments, it would tie Andrew Jackson as the most appointments ever to the Supreme Court by a sitting president. In addition to that, approximately one-eighth of the other federal judicial appointments are open right now. A sizable number, I don't know the exact number, but a sizable number, 20, 30, appointments have been pending that President Obama has, has made recommendations on. But it's, of course, likely at this point that those would be held at bay. So almost immediately, President Trump will be able to have some pretty significant and widespread influence in federal judicial appointments underneath the United States Supreme Court. So if you're looking for high impact relatively quickly, then you're going to see it with a change in the judiciary. Now, 
what types of justices will he appoint. We have more of a roadmap to go with Trump than any president in my lifetime because he is actually, during the campaign, he released a list of people that he thought might be good judicial appointments. And by and large, they subscribe to what our lawyer friends called textualism. Uh, and that is a, um, a respect for the text, not strict constructionism, but textualism where they read the text and then they try to gain a fair understanding of what that text says. It's not designed, their approach is not designed to stretch an interpretation of law. Scalia, for instance, was known as a textualist. Trump is almost certainly going to want to be giving something to these various constituencies that have elected him president. To voters in the Rust Belt who may have tended to vote for Democrats over the last several years but are frustrated because of a loss of industry or stagnation with jobs, it's entirely likely that he's going to want to give them policy that will assist with trade in the United States, probably a little bit more in the way of, of protectionism and uh, perhaps even an industrial policy that would help jobs return to some of the Rust Belt states. To other segments, he's going to want to give something. It would appear that to the block of evangelical voters, which went overwhelmingly for Trump. It would appear from what he said previously about the nature of some of these people that he's put on his list, it would appear that to evangelical voters, he intends to offer something in the way of judicial appointments. Now, for our purposes here tonight, and as we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, that would be along the lines of religious liberty protections. So a, a Trump presidency will likely lead to those kinds of judicial appointments. As I say, a stunning influence on the federal judiciary. The next point, Republicans picked this electoral lock, but they didn't break it. And I think that it's important to to study this for just a moment. First, you already know that the, uh, the, the popular vote, even though not all the votes are counted, it does seem pretty clear at this point that uh, Hillary Clinton will have won the popular vote. President-elect Trump will have picked the lock on the Electoral College. Now, uh, I think that if we had a show of hands in here tonight and if we were honest, it might be 90% or more who would say that we were all surprised that he picked that Electoral College lock because he was able to get some states that Republicans hadn't received in quite some time. And especially those, those Rust Belt states where um, Ohio, for instance, uh, which uh, went now, we understand, substantially for President-elect Trump, he had very specific plans in those states, well executed, and the voters were hungry and ready for change, significantly ready for change. But to say that this is what political scientists like to refer to as a critical election, which then sets a tone for what may follow over an extended period of time. For instance, when when FDR was elected in 1932. That was, that was a critical election. It set the pace then for a new Democratic Party coalition that stayed in place for many, many years. Political scientists like to say that they know when a critical election hits. In truth, political scientists don't know for about 12 or 16 years what a critical election really was. They can only look at it with the sweep of history. But this does not necessarily have the earmarks 
of a critical election because it was so close and because it appears that it was a, a picking of the lock. So to make too many assumptions about what this is going to mean for two years or four years or six years or eight years is, is probably a risky assumption right now. Last point. One lesson that I think we can gain from the election is that religious liberty may apply unevenly in the wake of the election. And let me tell you what I, I think I mean by that. It seems to me that the judicial appointments that will be made will be for people who will really want to protect the church per se. Religious liberty as it applies to worship in a congregation, those, those sorts of elements. I don't necessarily think that it's going to mean that, for instance, institutions like mine that are a degree away from the church, related to the church but not a church, I don't know that the same protections are going to apply related to religious liberty. I think when we were gathering a couple of weeks ago and where I assumed, as many of you did that night, that Hillary Clinton was probably going to win that election, I was already forecasting the impact on places like Sanford. And I think that I may even have said that night that uh, increasingly I was understanding our position as, as the remnant, and I'm becoming comfortable with that. It's still too early for me to say, uh, well, we are not going to be relegated to remnant status. I think I also said that, uh, that our the, the institutions that are one degree removed from being the church uh, would constitute perhaps the first wave of what might happen related to religious liberty and that churches would be impacted by that next. Over the last several days since the election, I've, I've come, instead of looking at that as the, as the front line or the next wave, I've tended to look on institutions like ours as what will be the gate that will swing back and forth as culture and theology collide here. You may have seen clips from uh, or, or seen it, uh, the uh, 60 Minutes interview uh, that uh, featured President-elect Trump uh, the other day. And uh, he was pretty clear, for instance, in saying on the issues related to gender identity and uh, same-sex attraction, that he considers essentially those issues settled. Uh, I think that it would probably be incorrect to assume that the Republican Party, in the wake of an electoral success here, is going to make radical changes on that issue. Well, we've got to watch that and other issues over the next few months and years to see. But don't be too surprised if that is one issue that is largely left alone. On, on this, this broader issue of, of electoral behavior, and please let me, let, me, let me be quick to say that anything that I say here is just an observation about current electoral behavior and perhaps forecasting what the future might be. Completely, completely not including what God chooses to do. Okay? I understand that completely. I'm talking only about electoral behavior as it was last week and how, therefore, it might be in the years ahead. But in particular, millennial voters and how they are going to come into, increasingly, come into the electorate. We, we did see uh, in the election last week 
that millennial voters rather predictably tended to vote Democratic. No big surprise there. But what increasingly we are seeing with millennial voters is a sensitivity to some other issues. For instance, the, uh, the, the abortion issue. Uh, it seems to many millennial voters that they are passionately interested in the rights of the unborn. This seems to be an issue that for more conservative voters has some appeal to millennial voters. On the same-sex attraction, gender identity issue, they are not so fast to join that cause to say we want to make our stand on this issue. So it will be uh, very difficult uh, for a lot of evangelical candidates to fashion their strategy on how they're going to work this so that they gain electoral majorities over the next several years. So that's, that's a quick um, snapshot of a few things that, that I saw. I want, to, um, I want to pause now, and uh, Jacob, we got a, uh, is this hot? Okay. Uh, let's, um, let me pause and listen to you all. Very good comments. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you, I'm sure a lot of people have been saying there's a lot of people that are obviously protesting and people are even calling for electorates to go against their state's vote and elect Hillary or just not vote for Trump. What are your thoughts on I know that would be something that's radically unheard of for electorates to do that. Sure. But. Well, first of all, uh, I think that it, it is interesting to note that uh, in, in a previous iteration, uh, Donald Trump was not a fan of the Electoral College. But he is now, okay? And, and incidentally, this is another reason why uh, we don't ever get rid of the Electoral College. Because once a person becomes president, then they kind of like the Electoral College, all right? So that kind of uh, is, is a barrier to, uh, to reform. Uh, those, uh, it, is, it is a hypothetical situation that an elector might be what is called faithless, uh, that might, uh, you know, even though they were, they were instructed to vote a certain way uh, when the Electoral College meets, uh, it would be a, a, a very rare occurrence for enough faithless electors to uh, decide to vote the other way that uh, Hillary Clinton, Clinton could be uh, could be elected. It is not. It is not impossible. It really is not impossible. That could happen, but it is uh, it is so unlikely uh, that uh, I can't imagine uh, anybody in the in the betting world taking odds on that. Okay. Uh, in some states it is, and remember that is state law. Uh, we, we sometimes forget that election law is state law, but uh, it does vary by state. But um, I, think that's, I think that's probably not likely to happen. You raise another question uh, about the, the protests that are now uh, taking place. And, of course, we're all watching those with, with interest to see if that is something that is, that is going to grow or if... People are going to get tired after a while and, uh, and, and go on with life. Too soon to know about that and the potential impact for it. And I'm also intrigued that, um, that President-elect Trump does not seem to be quite addressing that yet. Uh, I would imagine that uh, he's going to be sitting there about 1 a.m. one of these nights with that uh, cell phone in his hand, and uh, all of a sudden there's going to be a tweet uh, about uh, about that. Uh, okay, what else? Yes. I know we're here to talk about um, separation of church and state, but you um, spent some time earlier talking about the media. Um, what do you feel the church's role is in the media? In this election, we saw a lot of evangelicals endorse Trump. We saw some evangelicals um, step away from endorsements. Um, you know, post-election, what is the church's role um, in, uh, you know, speech and the media? 
Sure. Well, uh, in my my summary devotional thoughts here in a few minutes, when I talk about being um, uh, this this world being our home but not our eternal home, I'll I'll, I'll muse briefly about that. But my my view about, uh, for instance, uh, as as president of a church-related institution is that uh, I think that even though I can have my own personal views, uh, and I do have my own personal views, that uh, it, is, it is not the right thing for me to make public endorsements. Uh, I, I think I told you all the, the, the story when we met a couple of weeks ago that uh, when I was a kid, I, I put a bumper sticker on my dad's car, and he was a Baptist preacher, and and he didn't know about it, and we went out to, after church that night, and a couple of deacons were standing there looking at the bumper of our car, you know. Uh, so I kind of learned the, the hard way about that. But uh, I think that uh, those of us who, uh, who are placed in leadership positions uh, within churches, uh, within church-related institutions, that uh, we have to be very careful in the way that we approach that. I think that we can and we should, as Christians, all of us, talk about the issues that are important to us. And we can, we can do that consistently, and we should. And furthermore, I think that it is the role of the church, role of us as individual Christians, to be fully knowledgeable as we talk about those matters. Because, you know, you see it occasionally now in these television interviews where you've got this person who's got the two good lines, and then it all falls apart beyond the two good lines. They have not thought carefully about what the next thing is. And so um, it means that, that we ought to follow the example of Christ in achieving excellence in what we're going to be talking about. And it is, it's through that that I think that we truly begin to have the kind of influence with those who don't know Christ, that all of a sudden they say, you know, these are nice people, and they can also think. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of open space for the church on these issues. And the church is, I'm looking at, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled about this, I'm looking at a whole, I mean, not that the rest of you all don't matter, okay? I'm looking at a section largely of millennials right here. <laughs> Virtually full of, mo- of millennials. I can't emphasize it enough. This is where we've got to spend our time. And we've got to listen to them. And we've got to let them lead We've got to do this, and we're not doing, by and large, a very good job of it, generally, in evangelical work. You know, we had, we had Tim Keller at, uh, at Sanford last week, and uh, Randy, you may remember the, the statistic, but uh, in his church in New York, was it 60% of that congregation single? Sixty percent, they're young and single in New York, and they're they're attending this this very Bible-based conservative evangelical church, and they are on fire about it. Uh, Keller does a good job in that culture. Danny does a great job in this culture. We got to have more people like Tim Keller and Danny Wood and. Great, great people who will do this, but uh, that's 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 where it is. And I, I will say, uh, for for the conservative evangelical movement generally, uh, I think that this past election affords a very rare opportunity to take some of the lessons that have been learned and to then thoroughly involve millennials in what the next phase is going to be. So uh, that's, um, I don't, okay, I'll go on to the next thing.
Dr. Westmoreland, I was going to ask a question, uh, if that's all right. I have the microphone, so I feel like it'll be okay. Uh, on behalf of millennials, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself or most millennials, two things kind of came up for me in this election that I'd like for you to speak on if you can, and if not, that's quite all right. One, Donald Trump seemed super gross and not exciting to vote for, and the idea of him comforting our country in light yeah. of tragedy just there's a real disconnect there. Yeah. How should we respond to that, one? And two, I was also very compelled to be very over it at least a year ago, not to mention six months ago. Yeah. What should keep us engaged in this process? I imagine you'll speak to that at some point. <laughs> well, well, the, the first, uh, I mean the second thing first, what's to keep us engaged? He's going to be the most entertaining president we've ever had, okay? <laughs> I mean, I can't make a whole lot of predictions, but but that one I think is pretty safe. He is going to be completely entertaining. Now, now that may be engagement that we don't want, but uh, I think it is going to be very interesting to, to watch what happens. And I will also say that I, I think that a lot, actually a lot of his management skills are going to be very much on display over the next two months. Uh, we have, I think we have not maybe ever seen a president who is going to approach a presidency in a management way that he is. So there's going to be plenty to study in this uh, for us to see. But what was that? Did you say uh, you said completely gross or what? Su super gross. Super gross. Super gross. Yeah, kind of a technical term. Okay, super gross. And, you know, I felt the same way. And uh, I, I just have to, I have to say, I mean, when the tape, when that tape came out, uh, you know, the bus and all that, I, I just cringed. I, I thought, how can this be? And that is, that is so completely disturbing. And, and folks, I mean, he's going to do some things that are going to be embarrassing. Maybe, and I hope, and I pray, not like that. People wiser than I am consistently said, okay, you got to look at the issues. You got to look at the issues. You got to look at the issues. You got to look at the positions on the issues. And I continued to call myself back to that. Maybe some of you did as well. But if we, if we ever had an election, in, at least in modern memory, where uh, the choices perhaps for the majority of the electorate were so unhappy, <laughs> I think that this, this, was, this was certainly that kind of election. So this might be kind of a follow-up to what Jacob's question was now, but I think what we've seen this election is that politics is a dirty business. And it, a lot of the talk about the evangelical support for Trump is about the issues. It's about, the, and I think maybe even more so than his stance, just the fact that he's an avatar for the Republican Party. A concern that I've noticed among a lot of my, uh, my friends who are Christians, who have more who have concern about social justice issues and things like that is that the church's witness has been hurt by clinging to Trump as a tactical victory and by sort of, I think maybe it wouldn't be too much to say a lot of people view this election as the church having made a deal with the devil in order to secure a tactical victory. We've, we've hitched our, you know, we've hitched our cause to a guy who doesn't in any way represent what we say we stand for. What are your thoughts on that, and what specifically are your thoughts on how to handle that conversation as a as a witness? Beautiful questions, and it's not just one. I mean, that's like 15 questions right there. I should have expected that from you, okay? First, it doesn't have to be a dirty business. It doesn't have to. But good people, God-honoring people who can withstand all the junk have to become involved. And then they've got to stay the course with their own character. And they can only do that with the, with 
the support of the Holy Spirit every step of the way. So I guess I would say, those of you, most of you <laughs> sitting over here in this, this corner, uh, decide maybe that that can be your calling, that that's what you can do. Because if it is going to change, then you're going to have to make that happen. But it is, we saw, we saw consistently how dirty it is this time around. Making a deal with the devil concerns me as well. What I think we've got to do is we have got to, first of all, I mean, I, I hope we do this anyway. I mean, we need, to, we need to pray for those in authority. And not just lightly, not just on a Sunday morning. We need to pray earnestly for those in authority. And then in every way that we can, and this certainly would be true for those that he'll be appointing that will be immediately around him. We need to help him be a better person than he is. We need to help him be a better person than he is. Uh, I am I am somewhat encouraged with some of the names that that I'm hearing now that are that are being mentioned. They seem to be well. I will say specifically, uh, I have been encouraged that Jeff Sessions from Alabama may be one of those people. And uh, I know Senator Sessions pretty well. Some of you in this room may know him better than I do. And uh, I am, I'm actually very encouraged by that because my feeling is that he is a person of very high character. And I think that if he is in close proximity to President Trump, that he would not hesitate to speak truth to power. Uh, so collectively and as a nation, we need to, we need to pray for these people, and then we need to do everything we can to help them be better. I think, uh, how much, uh, what time is it now? Uh, 6.45, and Six. this can be called, we can, you can go well to 7.10, because this has included some of our q and Well, I'll tell you what, let me, uh, let me, let me go ahead and talk a little while about something else, and uh, I've I talked with our students about this a few days ago, the day before the, um, a couple of days before the election, and I was searching for a text that would that would work for this, not knowing you know what was going to happen with the election, and thinking about how as Christians we um, we come together, uh, well the whole country how we come together after the election, and uh, I. I landed on uh, the text out of John 17 that is uh, the prayer that Jesus is praying after he's been with disciples in what we call the upper room. And remember the context here. Jesus knows what is about to happen. And, I mean, it's not good, but he knows exactly what is about to happen. And then the, the, the text reads that he concludes his time with the disciples this way. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then picking up near the end of and then he, he opens himself in prayer. He says, after, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And then I'm going to cut to, in the interest of time, I'm going to cut to the middle portion of this prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, the disciples, and by extension, us, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that you, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Three quick, three quick points from this passage. Number one. We are called to accept the joy of our relationship in Christ, whatever burdens we bear. Did you notice what Jesus is praying in this prayer? He says, may they have the joy that I have. And this despite the fact that he knows that he's about to be betrayed and that he is about to be crucified. And he he says, may they have the joy, the joy. That I have. We may feel. Today. That we have these terrible burdens. That we bear. But there is joy. That comes with burden. Years ago. When I was a small child. I can remember. That in the little community where we lived. There was an elderly couple, or at least they seemed elderly to me at the time. They probably were about my age right now, okay? But I can remember this couple. They lived alone. They had nothing. They had a small acreage that uh, that they worked there, little bitty farmhouse. They had nothing in the way of material possessions in this world. And I can remember that One day, I noticed that a young boy exactly my age came to live with them. Found out later that it was their grandson. I still don't know to this day what circumstances had come together in the life of that family to cause them at an advanced age to take in this grandson. They had Nothing in material possessions. As I have looked at that at times over the years, I have thought what a burden that must have been for them to take this little boy into their lives. I understood then, and I understand better now, that taking in that little boy, which might have looked like a burden, was in fact the greatest joy that they had in their lives. Folks, when we look at the problems of this world, we often just need to turn them upside down because there is joy in some of the burdens that we face. In the life of Christ, as he approached the end of his time on earth and the problems that he was encountering, He prayed that we would receive the kind of joy that he had, even with the burdens, literally, of the world. Second lesson from the prayer. We're called to acknowledge the protection provided by God. This is a stunner in this prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father, the creator of the universe, He is praying to his Father for protection for the disciples and by extension us from the evil one. Jesus is praying to his Father God Almighty for protection for us. And we worry about anything. Jesus has done this for us. Praying for protection for us. And so while we are in this world and operating day to day and worrying about things like we've been talking about tonight. Jesus has prayed to the Father for our very protection. A few years ago, before I came to Sanford, I took a trip, Gina and I took a trip along with a few of our students to uh, Taiwan. And we did a mission trip there for three weeks. And one night, uh, I was finishing up a lecture on American culture. And uh, uh, a young man came up to me as I was erasing the chalkboard. 
And he said, tell me, tell me what it means. Show me the money. I don't know if you've ever tried to explain what show me the money means, but, you know, it's not as easy as you might think. And so I began to get into that, and I don't think I gave him a very good answer. And then he started to ask me a whole bunch of other questions. And so I was trying to respond, and I was standing there, and it was getting later and later. And then he said, um, you're, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yes, I, I am. And so we began to talk about matters related to Christ. And then he said, do you know Mary? Well, we'd been talking about Christianity, and I said, do you mean Mary, the mother of Jesus? And he said, no, Mary, your student who was here a couple of days ago. And I said, okay, okay, I, I know. And it was Mary, a young lady who had been there with our team just a couple of days ago in this classroom. And then he began to talk about Mary. Well, the story related to Mary is that when she was in high school, Mary had a bout with cancer. And, in fact, she lost a leg because of the cancer. She came to college. And then a few months before, weeks before we took this trip, Mary found out that her cancer was returning. So I called Mary to my office, and I said, you can't make this trip. You, you really can't. It's not in your best interest. Mary told me very quickly that she had raised all the money for the trip, that all of her plans were in order, and that she was going to make this trip. And she did. And so there I stood in this classroom this evening, talking with this young man. And it dawned on me very quickly that Mary, in fact, had been able to explain to him how even though she had faced very difficult problems in life, she was facing very difficult problems in life. She had an eternal protection that made all the difference in the world. And then he said to me, I was impressed with Mary. Words I've never forgotten. He said, I was impressed with Mary. He was not very impressed with me. I couldn't even tell him what, show me the money, man. But he was impressed with Mary. And Mary had been able to demonstrate very clearly to him that she had protection beyond anything that he could imagine. We're called to acknowledge the protection provided by God. And then the last point. We're called to aspire to a life based on truth. We don't like to talk about truth very much these days. But there it is. And in this prayer, in the closing portions of that, Jesus is praying that we could know that truth that endures. The truth that we can only know through Christ. And it doesn't make any difference whether it was in that time or in this time or if Jesus tarries, whether it's a thousand years from now. The truth will not change. The joy, the protection, the truth that we find. Love wins. Truth wins as well. It's important for us to remember all of those lessons regardless. We are in this world. We are called to what we are doing in this world. And aren't we honored, delighted, ecstatic that this is not our home? Jacob, let me lead us briefly in prayer and then... Uh, you, uh, you get to the questions, okay? Father, we thank you for the joy of life. We thank you for being able to be here tonight with friends. Father, we thank you for the privileges that we have as citizens of this country. And tonight, we pray especially for those who are in authority over us for President Obama, for all the members of Congress, for 
our governors, for our local officials, for all of them. Father, we recognize that you've given them exceedingly difficult jobs to do. We ask for your grace and your mercy and your wisdom for them. And then, Father, for President-elect Trump and those who will serve with him, we ask a full measure of your grace. Father, give in particular President-elect Trump tonight insights that he has never had before. Father, where necessary, convict him. Help him to be the sort of leader that we so desperately need in this country and in our world today. Father, help those who interact with him each day to know exactly the right things to say at the right times. Guide our steps today and always, Father. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Westmoreland, we thank you so much for leading us. We look to one another and to people like yourself to lead us in these conversations. Thank you very much. Let's show our appreciation to Dr. Westmoreland. At this time, those in the choir are welcome to be dismissed for rehearsal. We're excited to hear what you're preparing. Uh, and we're also going to now break up into small groups of five to eight people to ask the questions of one another that David's going to put on the screen in just a moment. Uh, questions three, six, 13, 15, and 16. We're going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes together uh, in small groups asking these questions, and then I will bring us back together in due time. All right, five to eight people asking these small group questions. All right, friends, we're going to close together. I hope your discussion was fruitful, and of course we're thankful for Dr. Westmoreland in leading us. Uh, we're going to close together with a responsive reading, so I'm going to ask you all to stand. I'm going to read the leader portion, if you would read together the congregation. Uh, we, this is straight from the Beatitudes. Whenever we say about who and what God blesses, when we say God bless America, which of course we want to happen, we also have to remember what Jesus himself said God will bless. And so I thought this would be an appropriate reading for us together. Let's pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God bless you all. Have a great night.